position, too many men on the field, Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block and the sideline. He has not stepped out, he may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up, what a move, shoots, scores! Hey, it's the Outsiders Podcast 43. Brent Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. How are you doing today, Robin? I'm outstanding, Brent. Ready to roll. Well, you had to think about that, though, for a second. No. Ready to roll, man. <laughs> okay, no well, hesitation. The last time we chatted, shortly thereafter, the Edmonton Football Club told us that uh, the coach that they hired, he was going to end with a perfect record of 0-0, zero and zero, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Scott Milanovic decided just to step away and take a gig down in the U.S. as a quarterback coach. Can't say that I blame him. It also made me wonder whether or not he could see something coming, whether or not it would not be a Canadian Football League season. But anybody in their right mind, if they were offered an NFL gig, would take that. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. I completely understand why he's gone. So now the Edmonton Eskimos did us a favor this time around because before we signed on with this podcast, they've announced that they've hired Jamie Elizondo as their new head coach. And uh, he will be looking after the offensive side of things, and he'll also be the quarterback coach. He's also uh, he's also coming with uh, some pretty good credentials because he was the offensive coordinator in Ottawa from 2016 right through to 2018. Helped the Red Blacks won the Grey Cup in 2016 as well. And A.J. Jakubik from TSN in Ottawa is going to join us coming up in a few minutes to talk about that and the quarterbacking carousel that we seem to be going on, seeing what's happening with Toronto and Ottawa. So we'll get to A.J. And we'll also talk a little bit about the Ottawa Senators. Perhaps they revealed themselves a little bit more last night against the Edmonton Oilers. Speaking of the Edmonton Oilers, what an effort by uh, the, the two big guns a six-assist evening for, obviously, Leon Dreisaitl. It was a big night for Germany, actually, if you want to take a look at it. We'll talk about that in a second, too. And uh, also, Connor McDavid with a five-point effort with one goal and four assists. But uh, lots to talk about today. Uh, the Oilers also playing Stuart Skinner between the pipes, giving Miko Koskinen a night off. Where do you want to start on this one, Robin? Well, for me, uh, the story is Stuart Skinner, not because he was great, but because at 22 years old, he comes in, he makes his NHL debut, he hasn't played a game of any kind in 11 months, and all they needed from this kid was the win. It wasn't pretty, it wasn't a masterpiece, but they got two points and they gave their goaltender a rest. I can only imagine how pumped the entire Skinner family was. And we're talking family. We're talking nine kids. He's one of nine children. Now, they couldn't be in the rink, but I can imagine uh, the text bill went up in the uh, aftermath of that game. He's got the W. Uh, that's in the books forevermore. And I felt he got a little stronger as the game continued to go along. You could also see how much the win meant to not only him, but also to his teammates who really did swarm him with a lot of love at the conclusion yeah. of that game. You know, they obviously wanted to do well for him. They're not the best team defensively. So he, on a couple of occasions, was asked to make some big saves in the third period, and he made them. It's all about making the saves at the right time. Yeah. Edmonton Oilers power play uh, on fire the last couple of games against Toronto and then against Ottawa. And I guess that's pretty much what we're used to seeing. And uh, that, that really comes as no big surprise. Well, I tell you what, I was waiting for this to happen. Now it's been a stretch of three or four games and I'm thinking, okay, where's that league leading power play as important. Where's Tyson Berry in all of this? Because a lot of us saw him, uh, as an upgrade coming in on the power play. Tyson Berry was ridiculously good uh, last night. He looked like the guy they wanted to run the power play. So, I mean, that part of it, 
I don't know if they go at the pace they did last year. That's awful hard to duplicate. But it's been, like you said, on fire lately. And that buys them some time while they get the five-on-five game uh, in order. And while Connor and Leon drag the rest of the team around on their shoulders. And when you take a look at the next four games for the Edmonton Oilers, uh, they are playing, well, the the next three, they're playing Ottawa twice and Calgary once. So there's opportunities to take points away from Ottawa again, although I think the way that they spanked the Senators, the second game coming up might be a little tougher. I think Ottawa might have been a little embarrassed by the way things kind of rolled out in that game. The only thing is the Oilers will be uh, taking on the Flames in Calgary on a Saturday night game. You know that both teams will be up for that. So it's going to be a fun week to watch both the Flames and the Oilers. By the way, Sam Bennett's people, now are saying that they did not ask the Flames for a trade. I wonder how that story got going, or was the initial story correct and something has occurred, and all of a sudden now they are coming back and saying, no, 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 we didn't mean that. We will never know the true story. As long as both players, as long as Sam Bennett's in Calgary, nobody's going to come out and say, yeah, we want it out of here, but we couldn't make it work. So wait and see. All I know is when you get this much smoke, there's usually some fire. Oh yeah. Maybe they've kissed. Maybe they've kissed and made up. Um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Sam Bennett's a good hockey player. He can play somewhere. If it's not Calgary, there'll be some teams who want to see him. The other thing too, if you're demanding a trade, you're basically saying I want to be traded right now. And a lot of these Canadian teams are not going to be trading with American partners and vice versa because of the uh, the COVID restrictions and the fact that there'll be quarantines, and I think that that's really going to temper a lot of trades. Yep. So, well, there, there we are. I mean, the talk here was, the talk here was, uh, you know, Bennett and Pugliarvi. I don't know why the Eskimos, or the Eskimos, the Oilers, would would uh, make a move for Jesse Pugliarvi right now. Um, it's coming along. He's, he's been good. He's been better. He's shown some things. He is... I mean, he's their guy. Uh, he's their draft choice. I don't think you make that move right now. Down the road, maybe. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. Let's talk about our first guest, Tammy. Okay, let's talk about our first guest. Oh, Jesus, Brent. <laughs> All right. All right, let's chat about our first guest on the show. Our headliner is Cammie Granado. Everybody knows uh, Cammie, if you, especially if you watch women's hockey at the Olympic level or even at the Women's World Championship level because she's only won, and she's won an awful lot of stuff. And uh, she, uh, she's got a great gig. This is a, I think she's, she's going to tell us about her gig coming up with the Seattle Kraken. I can hardly wait to find out exactly what, what that entails. I'm sure you feel the same way. Well, I mean, Cammy, if she's not the most decorated women's player in the history of the women's game, I don't know who is. She's in every hall of fame that you can have for yeah. hockey. Um, you know, she's a, she was a terrific player. Um, you know what? It's going to be exciting. We talked to Todd Humphrey down in Seattle about what's happening with the Kraken. She's breaking into a new job. I'm, I'm, dying to talk to her about what that entails because I tell you what, she's jumping into, uh, you know, a job description where you look down the press box, there's still a lot of male, middle-aged male faces doing the job in Wade's cabbie, Cammy, I doubt she's going to let anything slow her down. Just looking at the credentials, gold medal at the Olympics in Nagano back in 1998, Lost a tough game to Team Canada and uh, had to settle for silver in 2002 in Salt Lake City. But looking at the IIHF World Women's Championships, a gold in 2005. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight bronze medals. Oh, sorry, hang on. I lost one. They're all silver medals. There wasn't a single bronze medal in there. That's pretty impressive, if you ask me. And at the and at the Four Nations Cup in '97 and 2003, yep. a gold medalist there, and all the rest of the uh, medals for her at that event 
were silver medals. And it's just it's it's an endless endless uh, list of, of either gold or silver medals for Cami. She also scored the first ever Olympic gold for the U.S. women's hockey team, and that was back yes, in uh, February eighth of ninety eight. So that was obviously a non to Anyway, looking forward to getting to her. We'll talk to uh, we'll obviously be talking with AJ Jackiebic from Ottawa because all of a sudden there's a lot of news coming out of there. And the other thing we have to tell you about is the fact that. Our program, The Outsiders, is powered by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. And we chatted with Brent last week, and I've been talking to him since. He said that the team there is very excited about a promotion they have right now. It's uh, it's a neat one for sellers. Not only do they provide professional photography, 360-degree tours, video and floor plans of all of their listings, they also have a Coming Soon campaign where they will start marketing and listing uh, everything seven to ten days prior to any showing. So that way you get a chance to take a look before you have a chance to actually get over there and kind of put your feet into the into some shoes and walk around the hardwood or the rug or whatever. The idea is basically to create a little extra excitement for the home and create a, a list of people who would like to view the property on the first couple of days. So uh, it, it's kind of neat. If you have any interest in buying or selling a home, or finding out a little more information about the real estate market in the Metro Edmonton area, give Brent and his team a call. You can reach them at the McIntosh Group at 780-464-0075 or check them out online at mcintoshgroup.ca. They're looking for sellers, buyers, and uh, much, much more. Coming up, we're going to chat with Cami Granado in Seattle. Joining us on The Outsiders is somebody who knows the game of hockey inside and out because she is in I don't know how many Hockey Hall of Fames. Okay, so the Hockey Hall of Fame 2010, International Ice Hockey Federation, also U.S. Hockey. So, Cami, you're now with the Seattle Kraken. Tell us exactly what the new gig is. This sounds fun. Oh, it is fun. It is. It is. It's, it's really fun. The job itself is fantastic, actually. I really... Um have learned a lot in the last year. I'm really enjoying what I do. I think it's super rewarding to be part of a, uh, something that's building from the ground up. So the scouting part, you know, being able to contribute to help put a team on the ice is incredibly uh, cool and, and exciting. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. And then the organization on top of that is remarkable. Honestly, it's remarkable. I, you, there's no other NHL team that you look at and go, it, it's just not the same. It's not, it's not the cookie cutter. It's, it's, it's um, built in mind to have diversity, inclusion, people from all different walks of life, all different ages, all different opinions. That's really unique. And that alone uh, with uh, Todd Laiwicki at the, at the helm of that, the hires he's made and, and the way that everybody works together collaboratively. We had this COVID happen. We all worked on task force together. So I was meeting people from all different parts of the organization and everyone else was. Um, there's always meetings for uh, everyone that can jump on and be on together. So the Zoom and the virtual part has really helped us all get to know each other. And the attitude, energy, and just um, I think the fundamentals of the club itself are it's built for success in that way. And I just think hopefully the team will follow in that. I think it will uh, with the people that we bring in. Um, but it's uh, it's wonderful to be a part of it. You've done everything when it comes to to play in the game and you've been an announcer you've been involved in media but how did the conversation start with you and the crack and about hey come and be a scout with us so i had i remember when the team was announced that they, when they were getting a team my husband and i ray were both really excited because we live three hours north of seattle in vancouver and i was thinking i gotta be involved somehow i want to be involved so i hadn't really like talked to anybody from there um, but I had just a call in August come actually Ron Francis called Ray to get my number. Um, and then Ray, and then Ron called me a couple of days later and asked if I would want to do some scouting. And that was the, I hadn't put my name in for any of that. I just, I know he was looking for, um, for scouts. And when he asked, I was like, he's like, take the weekend to think about it. And I'm thinking, Hmm, 
I don't think I don't. I'll, I'll take the weekend. I told him, sure, I'll call you later. But after I hung the phone up, I was like, ah, I'm not saying no to this. Like it's too great of an opportunity. So I was just super uh, thrilled. And I guess- this is going to be deja vu all over again because this is a discussion we had with Ray on one of our very first podcasts about that transition from playing hockey to becoming a broadcaster, thinking you could always do it, and then you start doing it. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm way in over my head here. I can learn this, but I just didn't think it was going to be this tough. In your particular situation, moving into scouting, are you finding it's tougher than you thought, or are you just moving in there so 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 smoothly? Um, you know what? I think that I, I broadcasting. I actually did some broadcasting when I was when I was uh, done playing hockey, and that was a lot more challenging to me because it was so different. Because you had to get your thoughts in in like the smallest increments, and and you, you really had to know when and how to jive. So that was a long learning curve. And, I, and I'm not a person that gets my words out in like a small sentence. Like I need a few minutes to, to get it out, right? So I was like, this is, this is not my strength. Like I, I could do studio work and that was fine. But so that was, that was challenging. And, um, but for me, I think the, the scouting part, you're basically watching a game and you're giving your opinion. So you don't have to be anything else but yourself. And I think I have the ultimate confidence in my ability to recognize what I see on the ice and put it into words. So the learning curve was trying to figure out the software. Um, it was learning how to file reports. It was how many guys should I scout? Um, and then, and, the, and then the team would Ron and, and, and the hockey ops would let us know what, you know, how to, how to, what they want more of what they want less of. And so great, great advice from a lot of scouts that say, you know, it takes a couple years to get to know the league. Um, so don't write something down that you don't really believe in. You got to be behind your words. And that, and I've stuck to that from the beginning and, um, and I've evolved. I've, I can see how I've evolved over the year, but I still have a lot to learn. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's basically giving your opinion on what you see. And that's the easy part because I, I trust myself because I've, you know, I, I know the game. Now, Tammy, I understand you're, uh, in a pro scouting capacity, uh, moving forward, um, what has that looked like for you up till this point, given the complications with COVID? Uh, what sort of territory are you going to be working for the crack? And, and has there been any challenges uh, where it's a lot of Zoom meetings and not so many in person? Yeah, you know what? I think there's been some things with, with the virtual that have helped us. And there's been some things that, that, are, that are not as fortunate, right? So we can't, we couldn't get into the arenas and watch as much hockey as we could. The AHL hasn't been running up uh, up and running like it should be. Um, so it is harder to get games. Thank goodness for technology because you can see games that have been previously taped. You can watch. We watched virtually. We did the playoffs, uh, for for example, um, all virtually. The bonus of that was we learned more teams and, and we all really focused on, on knowing those teams. And so that was the bonus is we have this. I mean, if it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or even maybe five years ago going through this, it would have been way harder without the you know, all the tapes that, that are recorded and, and, and the data. So, so it's been okay. Um, I think for me, I've, I've, I'm a, I, do, I do the NHL, I'm an NHL scout. So I, I covered last year at the, uh, all the, all at Rogers arena here in Vancouver, I covered the Western conference specifically um, the Pacific division. And then this year I'm, I'm covering the Canadian division. And so I can get to the arenas, which has been fantastic watching a game live. I think the benefits of that is you can see stuff behind the play and and you can just see more of the, the defensemen and, and how how the, you know how the, how the play started. Uh, you can also see the speed a little bit better than you can online. Um, so that's been great going to the games. But but there's also the virtual component that can work. And I think uh, we've struck a nice balance with that. And we're just forging ahead because that's really all we have. And I think um, again we'll be we'll be okay. It's just uh, it's just figuring out how how to get through those challenges and really just you know get to the ground and work. Is there an advantage to seeing the same team play two or three times over the span of two or three nights? Yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. It's because uh, I, I found that in the playoffs, I found that it's a lot easier to see players uh, in that short time, and then get to know their tendencies, get to know you know what they're about, you know, in all different situations. And I quite like the three game series, two to three game series, what you're seeing already currently. Um, it is hard right to not judge too much because some of these guys haven't played in over a year and some of them have, you know, anyone that's been injured hasn't played in over a year. And then other players, we know there was that break and we know they're getting going. So we have to be a little bit more aware of that. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, that's just sort of what we're, 
what we're looking at and, and understanding, but it's really, we're happy that it's going on and we're able to get into some of the ranks and, and do the, do what we need to do to get the team on the ice. It's got to be timing wise. It's got to be pretty good for you, Cammy, because you're not looking at players now with a decision that needs to be made in a week or a month about how they might fit in down yeah. the road. Do we want this guy? What would we give up to get this guy? A lot of the regular scouting questions. It's sort of like training wheels for you and the organization right now until you get up and running, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. Like it is in that scenario that you're talking about, but it isn't because we're building a team. And this team, we want to build it right from the start. So there's a there's it's not a, it's not a bad pressure, but there's a pressure on us to get it right and really overanalyze. We, this is the time to to work extra hard. This is the time to overanalyze. This is the time to really try to figure out like if you if you think there's a few guys that you know are in this mix to be unprotected, like which one's going to benefit and why, and and really like look at that in a in a deeper way and really hit it hard. So I think that's where it feels really um, pressing in a good way. Um, we have a date for July for when we, when we draft a team and when that, when that got on the calendar, it was like, okay, this is what we're, we're doing this for right now because we gotta, we gotta be right on this. Um, and I think that's the fun part and it's the challenging part, but I'm, you know, I, I really enjoy this process and I'm to be a part of a team that starts from ground up is pretty unique. Is there more pressure because we saw what Vegas did? I mean, that was amazing. And so obviously they've set the bar quite high. Yeah. Well, that's what, I mean, we've heard that over and over and over, Vegas, oh, yeah. Vegas, Vegas, right? And and so there, there's a lot of pressure. Hopefully, you know, there's the, with COVID people understand, or maybe they're, I don't know. We're, our goal is to put a good team on the ice um, as best as we can. If we can be that successful, great. But, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty remarkable was. what they did and they did they uh, they did a great job. So I think um, you know we're, we we've got the we're gonna, um, we can only we're just going to do the best best we can to to put the team together. And it's our GM Ron Francis is amazing, and he's got an amazing group there in management to uh, to be in that uh, make those final decisions. Now, what you look like as a team is obviously going to depend on who's available, but. Has Ron, yourself, and the rest of the hockey ops people, are you going in with a, a certain philosophy, a certain, we want this mm-hmm. kind of player to build this kind of hockey team? You know, and in our meetings, actually last year when we met, was sort of our thoughts, Ron's thoughts of, of how he wanted the team to look. But, and, and, we're, and we're looking at that a little bit, but it, it really is, um, I think in, in his mind in the end too, he, he makes that final decision. So the players that we have scouted, the players that we, you know, have suggested, um, he'll be able to go, are they, do they, or do they not fit what I'm thinking? So I think, you know, that we're, we're looking at a little bit, but, um, also we're just really, you know, getting the players, their attributes and what they offer. And then he, he takes that information. Got to start taking a look at some of the other things that you're involved in. You're involved in uh, lots of other projects that are close to your heart. Tell us about the latest one that you're involved in. Yes, I just did the 21 Grants program um, with the fundraising platform uh, FlipGive, who I have a a good relationship with. And um, we had um, given away, well, we were supposed to give away 21 Grants because 21 Grants is my number. Uh, But we ended up, after reading through our committee, when we read through all the applicants, we had 30 diff- 31 different states represented of young girls in the U.S. Um, with uh, that, that had filled out applications, and we went through them all. Uh, there were 300, and there were there were so many that I, it was so hard to say no to every. I wanted to say yes to everybody, but but we in the end we ended up picking 21. We added three more. Uh, Dave Hunter, one of my um, coworkers, that's a scout. Just, uh, donated some money. My parents and myself, we donated some extra money to get three girls covered. And then the NHL, NHLPA, and Pure Hockey um, jumped in and added three more uh, pieces of equipment because they they were you know generous enough to give us equipment to cover for these girls. Um, so it was really, really fun to finally give back, really rewarding to give back. And uh, I just put the stories out on social media uh, this past week about all the girls and, and, and who they are and um, really excited that I can give 
and we can give as a, as a group to these to these girls and make them feel like you know someone's behind them and and we support them and especially through these times of COVID where it's expensive and um, you know it's 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 hard it's hard so we uh, we've just done that and hopefully we're going to grow it um, and and go into Canada next year and give more girls some grants because they're deserving and um, I just want to give back. Now, is this uh, at this point, Cami? Is the program uh, nationwide in the U.S. or a certain number of states? What's nationwide. The reach of it? Yeah, it's nationwide. I mean, I, I was shocked when there were like girls from places that you wouldn't think are playing hockey. You know, in, in the deep south, or um, you know, we have someone in there you know, a lot kids in Iowa, and, and it was like all these different markets where traditionally women's hockey isn't so big, and a lot of these parents were talking about how they had to drive two to three hours to take their kids to to hockey. Um, so I was I was amazed. So yeah, I covered the it covered all the United States, um, and then again we want to expand it next year. Um, but the stories there was there was quite a few girls from Texas, which made me understand like. Like the, the Dallas Stars, like having a professional team in your city does really grow the sport, both for women and men. So I was uh, I was interested to see that as well. We've had Tara Sloan on from Sportsnet, uh, and we got into a great discussion over the women's game. And while there's a lot to like, there's some stuff that's just moving way too slow. Do you see it the same way? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's very slow. It's very, very slow. I think uh i things do take time but i think from a standpoint of this movement right now where there's this more awareness to equality and you're seeing women in all different positions now and you're seeing sports get a little bit more notoriety the social media part can caught you know can um be a, a positive to get momentum but you know if you can't see the sport how are you going to play it or be, be um inspired and that's what i mean with these girls that were you know i had a number of girls from these cities that were non-traditional markets typically for women's hockey, like a Texas where you, you realize the NHL teams there and these girls are seeing it. But if you could bring women's hockey, you know, put it on TV, um, have a pro league. We need it. We need a pro league. That's like back hopefully by the NHL. Like we, we have some professional league that are going right now, but as far as like getting everybody on the same page, we, that needs to happen. And then getting the game out there and, um, and being seen and being in buildings in those areas will will grow the game, and, and the game's ready for that. The, the talent is there. It's, it's an exciting sport to watch. It's so interesting to me how much work remains uh, to, to to grow the women's game. I mean, I know you don't hold yourself up as sort of the first over the hill or anything like that, but you go back to when you started there was even less, it was more difficult. There were less places to play, less support there. Why have we taken so long to get with it and say, look, hockey's for everybody, gender, race. If you want to truly grow the game, don't you have to go that route for everybody? Yeah, and, and I and I felt that when I played, you know, 20 something years ago, um, but we, when we played in the Olympics, we were virtually unknown in, in the country. I mean, I, I know Canada was very behind women's hockey. Like we'd go into Canadian buildings and we'd fill it 10,000, 20,000 people, whatever, whatever building we went in, we would, we would get fans. But, but in the U S it just wasn't the same. And I think there was, there was so much to compete for. And a lot of things were about dollars and, and selling advertising. And, and so I think there was just, you know, fear to have, you know, if you're going to have one in hockey, you know, are you going to get advertising? And, 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 and so it's all, it was all this, you know, that stuff was going on when we were playing, but you know, we played that Olympic games and then we never played a game in the U S right afterward. We should have been touring and playing in, in different cities. Um, you know, yes, the game did grow after that, but there were opportunities that we, we didn't take. Um, but you know, you can't have it on television every four years and expect it to grow. So this is the same conversation we're having today. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think, now that there's more awareness, now that there's more um, understanding about inclusion and equality, I think this is the right time and it will happen. It's just um, how and when, and I can't wait for that. Cause I, I think that it'll be, you know, it'll grow the game more. It'll give um, people a clear understanding that women are, are at this level. So I think 
you know, that's, that's the good thing. It's just, you have to be patient sometimes. That's the hard part. (laughs) I don't know if you're very good at that. I know I'm not. So uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to see things move at a much quicker pace like you would. Okay. Now you, you grew up in Illinois. So how did you get started playing hockey? Like who, how did you get directed? Yeah. How did that, how did that you know first start? Yeah, Illinois wasn't, was not a hockey hotbed growing up. It was Minnesota that was the big one. Um, we were kind of, my family, I grew up, I was fifth of six kids in line. So I had big brothers that played, three, three older brothers that played. My dad had, mom had season tickets to the Chicago Blackhawks. So we were born into sort of, I was born into the game. I had a Hawks jersey on right away. Like I was, Keith Magnuson was my favorite player and, I was three years old. Like I, I just, I, I don't know why, but I was three and I like, maybe it was his red hair at the time. I don't know. He, I, I was drawn to him. Um, exactly. Maybe, but, but he, uh, exactly. But, but I think, um, hockey there, we were the only kids at school that played. Like we were only kids in our school that played. It wasn't that big, but we, it was everything to us. And I just don't ever remember hockey not being there. My mom put me in figure skates, like with my older sister thinking, that's what girls are supposed to do. And I would leave the figure skating rink and I'd go watch the hockey. And my parents were, I think maybe because I was fifth kid, they were brave enough to say, yes, you can play hockey with the boys. Why not? Let's just throw her in with, you know, her brother. And, um, and so I, I, I did, after I promised to finish those lessons, I went and played hockey and I don't think they had a, an understanding clearly of how much I did love it. But from that point on, it was just like, you know, this is what I am meant to do. And it was just a part of me that I can't explain. It was, it was, it consumed all my thoughts and it's what I wanted to do all the time. And I think with that, um, you know, there were challenges and there were a lot of people that made a lot of noise, but I had a really great buffer around me from my parents and my brothers who just treated me like one of them. They never treated me like a girl playing hockey. They treated me like a hockey player, which is what I identified myself as. Right. So there were a lot of, uh, threats and injuries and people taking runs at me and a lot of talking and a lot of parents that are, you know, refused to have their son to play with me and just a lot of noise. But, uh, but I had good people around me to kind of buffer me from that. Was Tony the only brother that played or did they all play and they all supported you? Yeah, no, my three older, my three older brothers, Don, Tony and Robbie played. They all played at the university of Wisconsin. They were all actually captains there. Um, Don coaches in with the Buffalo Sabres and coached with the U S development program. Um, and then Rob, my brother coached women's hockey for like 20 something years and ran, uh, ran in the rink, one of the rinks in, in Illinois. So he, uh, uh, it's, it's in our blood. It's, it's all my nieces and, and nephews played. And so, yeah, it's a family, a family game for us. Now you go from a hockey hotbed like Chicago an original six town. How did you end up in Montreal at Concordia? Uh, <laughs> it's funny U-turn. because, yeah, it was the U-turn. It was the coldest winter that I went up there to my first year. I was like, this is not Chicago winters. Holy cow. But honestly, that was some of my favorite playing days. We're playing for Les Lawton and Julie Healy in, at Concordia. Um, we, we were allowed at that time to play four years of NCAA and then continue playing in the, in the Canadian uh, collegiate and, and, and I was really lucky that I, we had that because when I was a senior at Providence that we were, we were told we were in the Olympics and going up to Vancouver or going up to, sorry, Montreal for those uh, two, two and a half years helped me prepare myself for the Olympics that were coming up in 98. Me and a couple other teammates went up there and we had an amazing team. And uh, yeah, I have some, um, I have some great memories of Montreal. What a great city and some great people that I've, you know, Still, still know and love today. I've got to ask, because I saw this in the notes. I, I really didn't know it before I read it uh, yesterday. Did Mike Milbury uh, offer you a, a tryout at training camp yeah. with the uh, uh, Islander 97? Yeah. And uh, I read that you declined. Uh, you didn't go? No, you know what? That was one of the hardest decisions for me because I had grown up wanting to be a Blackhawk. Like I wanted to play in the NHL, but just like my brothers did, I, I wanted to hoist Stanley cup. I was the same as them. Like there was no difference in my mind. I just, that's, that was the pinnacle and that's what I wanted to do. It was pretty crushing to realize that, you know, as I got older and I wasn't growing like the guys that that wasn't a reality, but having this chance to play in the training camp or get invited to training camp, I know Mike and, and, and talking to him at that time 
was was honestly just really offering it to give women a chance to show where they where they measured up. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't for a media uh, circus. It wasn't for you know to get attention on their you know team. It was he had a daughter that played hockey. He supported women's hockey, and he really wanted to give uh, a chance to, to show light on it in a positive way. For me, the decision it wasn't something I took lightly. I had to think for weeks, maybe a week on it. I think, but it felt like weeks. Um, the the ultimate reason I said no was because I was one year away from going to the Olympics, and I knew if I went into that training camp and some guy wanted to prove me that you know prove to me that I shouldn't be there, someone that weighed 135 pounds against a 200 pound guy, I might not come out of the corner. You know, if he really wanted to, you know, stick it to me and say I shouldn't be here. So I was really worried about an injury, and it, ultimately that's what held me back because I knew I knew in my heart of hearts I was going to go to that training camp. I was going to be a part of it. Was I going to play an eighty game season with them? No, my my stature and my size, you know, were against me in that in that in that category. So, and I would be a target because definitely at that time it wasn't as you know. So I so I did I did. Um, say no and I was honored to have that uh, that offer but uh, that was the reason that was the reason why I said no Is that gold medal in Nagano the highlight for you of your playing career but it's, it's hard when I take a look at the long list of silvers and goals that you have it's hard to pick one but that one to me would I would have to think that's right up there It well okay winning is, is the greatest feeling ever so winning on a world stage winning an Olympic gold medal when you've watched I was a big, you know, kid who watched the 1980 Olympic team win for the U.S., the Miracon Ice, you know, playing in that rink while we're building up to the Olympics, like, because we trained in Lake Placid and, and knowing what it all meant. I mean, an Olympic gold medal, I mean, you can't get, that is the pinnacle for for women's hockey. You can't get any higher than that. And winning on a world stage, the feeling of it, like I'd always watched championships and wondered how it felt. It it was like, you can't explain it, how amazing it is. So that for sure was the best. There's nothing better than winning that feeling of winning and everything that you work for feels worth it. So losing on the other end is like the worst feeling. And that's why people, I don't think understand when you lose in a gold medal game and people are crying and they're not happy when that silver medal hits them. It's not that they're not grateful. It's like in that moment, we've just lost the thing we were after and it's devastating. So yes, that was, that was the best feeling. Um, that was the, one of the most memorable things that, that we get to carry with us. And still to, our, to this day, that team, we're on a WhatsApp together and we still, you know, talk to each other. So it, it's a bond that forever has, you know, kept us together. And I think, um, yeah, really, really special to win. We only have you for a couple well, more minutes here, but I, I got I have to ask, uh, we have to bring the old geezer into, uh, into, the, into play here. How did you guys meet? Now, hockey brings people together, but... You yeah. and Ray, how did that? Uh, how did that? Yeah, happen? the hockey world. The hockey world is small, so everybody knows everyone. And, and 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 ironically, I was, I had seen Ray play. Oh, I think it was like when the lockout came. My my about six of the my teammates from Providence, we went and watched in Hart maybe Hartford or I can't remember where New York. They were doing this uh, four on four. My brother was in it, so we went to watch my brother. And I saw Ray on the ice at the end of practice. I was like, Hey, who's that little guy? And I was like, oh, it's Ferraro. He, I was like, oh, he has a great work ethic. That's all I knew of him, right, at that point. And then we met when I worked in L.A. And uh, I did broadcasting for the L.A. Kings in 98, right after, 98, 99. And so he was on that team. And he was the first guy that our PR person said, if you need a good interview, go go interview him. So I knew him through that. And, and then we kind of hooked up a little bit later with our, we ended up working with the same trainer. And that's kind of how it all sort of go went from there. Wow. wow, it's uh, you know uh, it, it's nice that uh, we, we we've had Ray on numerous times, but it's finally great to get the brains of the operation on on the show here today. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, uh, thanks for your time today, and uh, we can't wish you uh, good enough luck with uh, the new gig with the crack and right, Robin. I mean, it's it's going to be fun to watch. I, you know what? I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up in Coquitlam. Uh, I saw Ray Ferraro play at Queens Park Arena as a junior. <laughs> I was pre-journalism days, but 
He told me there were some some scary, scary moments on that uh, that rink there. Oh. That it was a pretty tough team in at yeah. Queens Park. Oh, man. It was the it was a total as Ray as players say. It was a total donkey show every every game. It was you know they'd have five six guys with three hundred pims in that lineup. Eh? It was just it was it was a different time. But I had family in Seattle. And we'd go down and make that drive. And I loved the totems back then. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to be wonderful. Talking to Todd, as Bryn and I did earlier, it seems like an exciting time. I really believe it's a, it's a hockey city. So, yeah, to get in on that ground floor, like you said, man, what a great story that's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And I'm really, really happy to be a part of it. I can't wait to see how it unfolds. Thanks for your time today. <laughs> oh, what's, one more, Robin? One more. Tammy, Uh-oh. just let our people know. No, 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 no secrets here. The link again, uh, is it, it's Flip Give, the website for people who want to go yes. to the website, and they can take it from that homepage yes. and find out what they need to find out? Exactly. Flipgive.com is where you go to find out where the link is. You, you can look for the link for fundraising for the 21 Grants Program. So it's the... <clears throat> It's either the 21 Grants Program or Cammy Granado 21 Grants Program. So you can find it on that website. And if you want to donate any money, even if it's $5, all of it, 100% of it goes to the girls. So really exciting. Outstanding. Thanks, Cammy. This has been great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, like nothing's been going on in Ottawa for the last few weeks. And uh, some news today that affects the Edmonton Football Club because it's got an Ottawa connection. And joining us from TSN 1200 in Ottawa is the voice of the Ottawa Red Blacks and almost every other team in Ottawa. A.J. Jakubik joins us. How are you doing today? Doing awesome, yeah. No shortage of topics uh, in Ottawa as well. And certainly uh, with an Ottawa-Edmonton connection on a couple of fronts. Well, we laughed last week because we had just finished downloading our podcast and we kind of heard through the grapevine that Scott Milanovic was probably done in Edmonton. We didn't expect the announcement to come quite so fast. So today, just before we got going, we find out the Edmonton Eskimos. Oops, I did it. All right, hang on. Here's a quarter in the jar. The Edmonton Football Club with an announcement on a new head coach. You know this guy. Tell everybody a little bit about... uh, about the guy who's going from Ottawa to Edmonton. Yeah, well, Jamie Elizondo is a guy that, uh, you know, I got to know quite well here. Uh, I, I really like Jamie. He spent three years uh, as the Red Blacks offensive coordinator, and they won a great cup in 2016 and went to another in, in 2018. So um, it, it certainly, uh, it, as soon as word came down that Scott Milanovic was even just pursuing NFL opportunities before the word came down that uh, he, he was he, he was out as head coach at Edmonton. Like to me, the first name that came to mind was Jamie Elizondo because, from all accounts, you know Edmonton wanted to interview Jamie when uh, when the job was open in the first place. But at that point, he was in the XFL and wasn't allowed to interview. So you, you knew the connections between Brock Sunderland. You knew they were looking for a head coach slash OC which was what Milanovic had. And, and obviously just the, the situation with Trevor Harris, knowing Trevor and, and working so well with Trevor, like it just seemed like a, a no brainer on so many different fronts. So uh, yeah, my, my, my take is, uh, you know, you never really know how a guy's going to go uh, from coordinator to head coach. Some guys it's seamless, some it takes a little bit longer. Some it, it's just not in the cards, but uh, certainly when it came to uh, offensive coordinator, and that role, uh, Jamie Elizondo had, you know, everything you'd want in a, in a great offensive coordinator, someone that uh, communicated well, someone that certainly had his X and his, X's and O's uh, down pat. And, and uh, you know, again, that chemistry with a quarterback so important. So ticks a lot of boxes. I know we left here on, you know, in unfortunate circumstances, the infamous uh, press release where the Red Blacks said, uh, uh, Elizondo quits on Red Blacks. I think that's one where, you know, in hindsight, probably both sides would maybe do things a little bit different. Maybe Marcel Desjardins 
would have liked to, you know, just say, hey, you know what? Chris Jones had left Saskatchewan late. That's what happened. Jamie had, had basically interviewed for a couple of head coaching jobs around the league, but he wasn't given permission because it was late in the game uh, to interview in, in Saskatchewan. And we saw how it worked out in the end, why losing an offensive coordinator that late in the game can be so problematic. But maybe just let him, in hindsight, interview in Saskatchewan. They ended up going in-house anyways with Craig Dickinson. Then you don't have that unfortunate situation. Maybe Jamie would have done things differently. Maybe Marcel would have done things differently. Two good people, as far as I'm concerned. Two good football people. And, you know, they, they butted heads. And, and it ended kind of in uh, acrimonious fashion. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I think Jamie's a good football guy. I had nothing but positive dealings with them and we'll see how it plays out in Edmonton well I guess if you're going to have a connection starting with uh, the quarterback and a, and a receiver the caliber of Ellingson is uh, a good place to start the question I guess is translating that from being a coordinator uh, to the head guy how strong a connection did he have with them AJ were they pretty tight uh, beyond the uh, being their coach yeah, I, I don't think there's any question. He was uh, he had a great relationship with Trevor Harris, and 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 I know like there there were some issues in terms of they had some longtime staff members, um, you know, long time being you know relative, right? I mean, the, the Red Blacks have only been in, in existence since 2014, but some guys that were here since day one, and Brian Chu and Travis Moore, who were real good CFL players, real good CFL coaches that won a great job, but after 2017. Uh, you know, there, there were some issues in terms of the coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball where, you know, from all accounts, it sounded like Travis Moore and Brian Chu. Um, you know, I don't want to say they gave an ultimatum to the organization, but basically kind of said, look, if Jamie's back, we're not going to be back. And in the end, they weren't back. So, and, and the staff after that was never as strong as it was in, say, 2016 or even 2015 when Jason Moss was the offensive coordinator. So uh, I think part of the reason that the Red Blacks went in that direction at that time, I mean, number one, you want a great cup with Jamie Elizondo just a year prior when he was your offensive coordinator, but also just that relationship in particular with Trevor Harris. So I think, uh, you know, I can't speak for Greg Ellingson, but I don't think there's any question that there's, uh, you know, some synergy in terms of uh, what that relationship with Harris and Elizondo brings. Okay, let's now focus on the team that you watch on a regular basis. Man, I, uh, you know, they don't sell programs in many places anymore, but you might have to because the quarterbacking situation has changed rather dramatically with, with obviously Nick Arbuckle out and Matt Nichols has now joined the team. What, what, how did this whole thing roll out? Yeah, and, and we, uh, you know, we heard from Marcel Desjardins, we heard from Paul Police today, and so just trying to, you know, and, and, you know, I've known Marcel since day one here and, and he's a straight shooter. Like sometimes he says things that you don't want to hear, but it's not a lot of spin. And so I think a lot of different things at play, um, you know, obviously there's that uh, connection, you know, between head coach, offensive coordinator and, and quarterback with Matt Nichols and, and Paul LaPolice. So that's a big thing. So I guess, you know, the biggest question was, okay, well, why didn't this happen a year ago? If this was truly your target, you went out, you, you flopped first round picks. You had the number one pick overall, which isn't as big a deal. in the uh, CFL as it is, say the NFL, or the NHL or, or the NBA draft, but still you, you, you drop from one to six uh, to go out and get Nick Arbuckle from Calgary. So obviously you liked him and targeted him as the guy you wanted in the previous off season. Uh, so what changed? Well, in the end, I, I think a couple of different things. Number one, Matt Nichols was fully healthy. Um, you know, he was coming off shoulder surgery and a major injury uh, in 2019 that cut his season short at the halfway point, which, uh, you know, forced them to go out and get another quarterback. And the rest is history with Zach Caleros leading them to a great cup win. But, you know, he was healthy. Uh, he was going to be available. I, I mean, six different teams in the CFL restructured deals with their quarterbacks from Mike Riley in BC to Bo Levi Mitchell in Calgary to Trevor Harris in Edmonton, Cody Fajardo in Saskatchewan, uh, Zach Laurels in Winnipeg and, and Vernon Adams Jr. in Montreal. Hamilton's situation a little bit different. Masoli signed as an unsigned free agent because again, much like Nichols, 
his season was cut short in 2019 and Dane Evans was on a very team friendly contract anyway. So they didn't really have to restructure there, but you know, that left Ottawa and Toronto and here you had Ryan Dinwiddie head coach in Toronto that worked with uh, Nick Arbuckle in Calgary. And of course, La Police, uh, who, who worked with Matt Nichols in Winnipeg. So it, it just, you know, the, the money, I, I know there are a couple of things with, uh, it sounds like the money that uh, Matt Nichols is getting is like, he's getting a $200,000 bonus, but he's getting that when the season starts. Yeah. Um, it, it, with Nick Arbuckle, he was going to get 150 grand today. Um, and so like if all of a sudden there's no season, you already paid him 220 grand last year and he didn't play a game. So you may pay him 370 grand. Now I think there's going to be a season. I'm positive, but uh, you, you could have paid him 370 grand to play not one football game. So there, there was that they, they, you know, in, in the end, I, I just think, you know, as uh, Paul Apolise told us today, he talked about data points and the fact that there just were more data points with Matt Nichols in the league than the Nick Arbuckle. So 74 starts to, to seven in, in the end, like, I don't, I don't think it's going to make too big a difference in terms of 2021. And it might even work in their favor in 2021 in the sense that you, you've got a guy. I mean, what if there's a shortened season? What if there's no preseason games? What if it's limited training camp, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, now you've got a guy that started 74 games, that's worked a lot with a head coach in OC, knows the system. That's going to benefit them. I, I guess the flip side to that is, what if Nick Arbuckle, we kind of know what Matt Nichols is. Uh, what if Nick Arbuckle comes out and you know, basically reaches his potential and does it in short order. And all of a sudden he's one of the best young quarterbacks and best quarterbacks in in the game. He's 26. Matt Nichols is 33. Now that was another point that they talked about. Arbuckle only wanted to sign for one year, whereas Nichols has signed for two, but still, um, you know, I think there'll be a lot of sour Ottawa fans. If all of a sudden Nick Arbuckle is lighting it up in Toronto in 2021 and the, the red black struggle. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But in, in the end, I, I do, you know, especially after listening to, to Marcel Desjardins and Paul Lapolis speak, I, I think, you know, you, you certainly get the sense that the comfort level, Hey, this, this is a head coach that he's coming in. He knows, and it's a second opportunity as head coach, right? Yeah. He's had success as an OC. He had mixed success, right? They went to a, a great cup in Winnipeg when his second year in Winnipeg, but you know, he knows he's got to have success. And the fact that he's willing to bank on the veteran guy, I, I think bodes well for at least how much confidence he has in Matt Nichols. AJ, I, I know these are special times with COVID and everything's upside down, but is there room to do something different with the bonus structure in this league? Because nothing looks hokier than pulling the money from away from a guy once uh you know, whether it's the data, a lot of it's just the appearance of something. Is there room for change in this? Well, there has to be change going forward just all around in the CFL. Like, you understand it in a year like this, right? You you already had a contentious negotiation in ter- terms of the players and, and the league, and so you weren't going to renegotiate a deal that's already done. But, you know, basically the league had to do what was in – you know, kind of within their rights, which is basically go to the floor instead of the ceiling of the salary cap. So everyone's dropping five, 600 grand. And that means if you're dropping five, 600 grand and the, the minimum's the same, well, you know exactly who's going to have to pay the price. It's Adam Big Hill who's gone from 260 grand to 105 and uh, Willie Jefferson who took a $50,000 pay cut and, you know, all these different star quarterbacks around the league. So it's understandable, but, you know, long-term, to me, the biggest, I mean, Brand, you, you talked about this, uh, about needing a program, right? Yeah. That, that's the CFL in general. That's the CFL's biggest issue right now, and in my opinion, is the fact that, you know, I was hanging out with, uh, with a CFL fan yesterday, and, you know, she, she's saying, like, this is, I, I hate this time of year because, you know, you're, you're, you've got players that you've become attached to that all of a sudden – they, they end up leaving within like a year or two or, or, or more. Like in the end, you know, Greg Ellingson should be playing in, in Ottawa. I mean, that's a guy that 
you know, when I, I had a conversation with Greg Ellingson uh, when he visited Ottawa in 2019 and he looked up at, at the wall of honor and, you know, Henry Burris was up there and he thought, you know, geez, may, maybe I blew my opportunity to go up on the wall. And that's something that's forever. Right. And I think, you know, what I'd like to see is some sort of combination where it's two year deals all around, but you know, after one year, if you get an opportunity to play in the NFL, there, there's an, opt out with the provision that okay guess what if it doesn't work in the nfl you're coming back on the same cfl deal with the same team and that way at least if it's at least two year deals with everybody you're not going to see as much movement you're still going to see movement and that's fine but you're not going to see as much because it's just it's lose lose and, and the fans lose that connection with with players i mean i grew up you know in the 1980s in edmonton where you know i could name 25 guys right now. I mean, I was six years old when, when I remember winning them winning the 81 great cup over Ottawa. And I could name 25 guys off that team just off the top of my head because there was continuity year to year to year. And it's just not the case anymore. And that's, and the CFL understands this, but, but they have to in the next CBA and that, that has to be a collective effort, right? It has to be both sides working it out. They they have to find a way to, to have more continuity because it, it benefits everybody. It benefits players that, that stay in the market after they're done playing and, and find work. It, it it's benefits the fans. It benefits teams. So that, that's the biggest issue for me that the CFL has to work through. We only have about three and a half minutes here, so I don't know if you can do this. But last night, we watched Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid go absolutely berserk on the Ottawa Senators. I think some of it is reflective of where the Senators are. They've got a, they've got a core of good young players, and they've got some older players who I think need to step it up a little. But you also, it's Connor and it's Leon and the 11-point effort between the two of them. Where do you see the Senators going? This is a big week for both the Oilers and the Senators. I think we're going to start to see a little more settling on who's doing what, but uh, I don't even know where to start, what to even ask you on that, but give us a Senator take. Yeah, I mean... Fans here aren't upset that the team's won seven and one. Like they expected this team to be last. Yeah. They're they're upset because you've got guys like Logan Brown, Eric Brandstrom, uh, Alex Formanton, guys, you know, like two first round picks. One guy that you was the corner you know, corner stone of the uh, Mark Stone trade. Uh, another guy that, you know, all three have played NHL games, all three have played full seasons in in professional hockey um they're they're between 21 and 23 years old so it's not like they're fresh out of college or fresh out of junior and you're rushing 19 year old kids or even 20 year old kids i mean these guys aren't even on the taxi squad right now and it it defies logic that you, you would do this especially when there's no ahl games and and for the foreseeable future because right now it doesn't sound like a decision's going to be made on the AHL teams in Ontario until the state of emergency is over or, or, you know, basically when they decide what they're doing with the state of emergency in, in a week's time on February 9th, I believe. So I I just don't understand the thought process. I mean, to bring in four or five veterans in the off season, I get it. You don't want to ice an under 25 roster where the kids are just learning from themselves, but to bring in 10 guys in the off season, and, and look, some of them like Dadnov, I mean, he's been real quiet. Um, okay. You know, like maybe, maybe he finds a way to, to figure things out. It, it's, it's early, but some of these guys, like it's, it's a lot of the same guys, like, okay, maybe you pick up good Branson in the, in the off season. Did you need to get good Branson, Josh Brown and uh, Braden Coburn? Did you need to go out and get Paquette, Watson, Stepan, and Michael Haley? Like it, it's, yeah. it's mind boggling in terms of like, they, they promised the fans that the young guys would play. There have been nights where only four players, 24 and under have dressed the Chicago Blackhawks in 07, 08, you know, two years before they won their first Stanley cup, it was Kane and Taves first year playing in Chicago. There were nights they were dressing 12 and 13 players that were 24 and under, um, you know, the, Kids grow up fast nowadays. They need some veteran guidance. 
you, you need some guys to show the young guys the ropes, show what it's like, what you need to do to be a good pro. But you also need good players because if you're a young guy, and right now the least of Ottawa's concerns are Brady Kachuk and Drake Batherson and Nick Paul and Tim Stutzla and so on and so forth. Thomas Shabbat has struggled, but you know I think he'll get through that. These are the guys that are playing the best hockey for Ottawa right now. Yeah. So how can they look across the room at guys that can't pull their own weight and and have them say, this is what you need to do when they're the ones that are the best players? So uh, to me, I think some major, major blunders in terms of what Ottawa did in the offseason. And, you know, at some point they need to start playing more guys like Logan Brown, Eric Brandstrom, and Alex Formanton over the, the Paquettes, the Josh Browns, and so on and so forth. Thanks, uh, thanks for your time. We got a dash. We this has been a hell of a hell of a podcast today. Uh, thanks for your time. We'll we'll have more time to talk about the Senators in a few weeks. I'm sure there'll be more to talk about. So uh, thanks for your time, AJ. Yeah. Cheers, guys. We're about to wrap things up here. The National Hockey League have announced their three stars for the week. Who do you think two of the three stars are, Robin? My guess would be Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. That's uh, the second and the third star of the week. The first star of the week is Vancouver netminder Thatcher Demko. So there's your three stars from this week in the National Hockey League. Is there Uh-oh. anything? Is there anything we haven't talked about? Uh, is there anything that you wanted to discuss? Uh, we've touched on a lot of stuff today. Well, I think for me, there's two things. Um, the first is the world's longest hockey game. Yep. Uh, hosted at a place called Sakers Acres, Brent Sake. And a group of players are going to start the latest edition of the world's longest hockey game, February 4th through the 14th, uh, out in Sherwood Park. This is with proceeds going to the Cure Cancer Foundation. For those who aren't familiar with the game, and uh, those outside of Edmonton might not be, this group has raised over $5.5 million dollars uh, for various research projects and equipment projects uh, to do with finding a cure, treating cancer. It's a wonderful group. They go out and they're literally going to play for 10 plus days straight. It's a, it's a Guinness Book of World Records thing, but that's secondary. It's the money that they're raising. Brent, unfortunately, has been... Uh, touched by cancer in his family in a, in a pretty profound way, as have many of the players who go out there. Now, with COVID, they aren't going to be having fans packing the stands and the viewing area that they normally have. You just can't do that. They've been given an exemption to hold the event. So what people who are interested in contributing to the cause need to do is go to the website, uh, world's longest game.ca. And from there you can find out, uh, how to donate, what you can give. It's a wonderful event to go to, but unfortunately we just can't do that this year. So, uh, people, if you're not familiar with it, or if you are, it's the world's longest game.ca and uh, you can contribute to not only a great group of people, but more importantly in the long term, a cause that touches far too many of us. Also, you can go to curecancerfoundation.ca for more information on what the foundation does away from the game because they're involved in other events as well. You're also heavily involved with the mustard seed people in the Edmonton area. There's uh, there's some good news on their front as well this week. Well, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, I spent two and a half years uh, with the mustard seed, and one of the huge fundraisers uh, for them uh, was the Hockey Helps the Homeless game that's held here. 
I tell you what, that would take six months of work just to organize. And that game, with the help of the Edmonton Oilers alumni and other alumni, last time raised, I, I want to say roughly a little over 300000 to be split between the mustard seed and a, a place called the Jasper Place Wellness Center. That's a lot of money and it's important to the bottom line. Well, nonprofit groups like the Mustard Seed have just been hammered during COVID right across the country. Let's face it, in every city and every town, uh, it's affected what people can give. People aren't working. Their businesses are closing. All the things that we've listened to on the nightly news for a long time now. Well, I see today that uh, the Edmonton Oilers Foundation, the 50-50 draw they've been holding online, which has drawn some absolutely crazy uh, totals, the 50-50 draw against the Ottawa Senators on Tuesday, uh, the proceeds from that will be going to the mustard seed uh, here in Edmonton. and. We don't know if we're going to have the Hockey Helps the Homeless game again this May. It's up in the air because of COVID. But if the pot's 500 or 600 or 700, and it's been way bigger than that, if half of that goes to the mustard seed, it's going to more than make up for what's been lost or and what's raised in six months of work to put on a tournament. So thank you to the Edmonton Oilers who ever made that happen. Um, this is fantastic for the mustard seed and fantastic for the people that need help in this town. I just wanted to get that out, Brent. Two great causes to talk about to kind of wrap things up. The Outsiders, by the way, is brought to you by the McIntosh Group at Remax River City. If you'd like some more information on the great work that they do, and they're involved in the community in a lot of ways as well, but uh, their primary focus is to sell or buy homes, and uh, they're always looking for sellers and buyers. If you'd like to reach Brent or any of his team at the McIntosh Group, the phone number is real simple. It's 780-464-0075. That's 780-464-0075. Or you can check them out online at mcintoshgroup.ca. Big thank you today to Cami Granado from the Seattle Kraken for joining us on the podcast, along with A.J. Jakubik from Team, or sorry, not Team, sorry, well, that's going way back. TSN 1200 in Ottawa. So it was great to check in with AJ as well. Uh, we're also happy you didn't have a chance to see him, just hear him, because he had the scruffiest beard going today. It looked like it just it didn't look right. He's got <laughs> nothing up here. Like he's, he's completely bald, but he had a great looking beard. But it was it needs a bit of a trim, I think, is probably the best way to put it. Hey, also, one other thing. If you'd like to get a hold of us, it's real simple. The email address is... The Outsiders at Shaw.ca. So that's The Outsiders at Shaw.ca. You can check us out also on Twitter. The handle's real simple. It is at Outsiders, all in caps. That's at Outsiders 2020. And make sure you tell your friends and subscribe to our RSS feed on your favorite ear candy sites like Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts. There's a million of them out there. Your support is greatly appreciated. And when you tell two friends, they tell two friends and so on and so on. And it just kind of helps our podcast grow and grow and grow. Robin, that's it. Crazy week. Thanks for your time today. And we'll uh, check in with you again next Monday. Okay. Good show. See you then. All right. In the meantime, and in between time, that's it. Another edition. One thing.